Perfect. Then it's my great honor and pleasure to have Craig Newmark, the founder of Craigslist, on today's uh, podcast show of Making It Real. Uh, Craig, I think you're an extremely inspiring example of somebody who created a, um, a venture that changed the world. Do you want to describe a bit how you got started, how Craigslist got started? Sure. I'll probably make it a little brief. Uh, early 95, I realized that I should give back to the community that had helped me so much. When I moved to uh, San Francisco, I started a simple mailing list, mostly involving arts and technology events. And then I started listening to people as to what people really needed and wanted. Uh, over the uh, next few months, people started suggesting they would like to, to have the ability to post job opportunities, to post items for sale. I said, uh, Hey, how about apartments for rent, since I saw the shortage starting then in San Francisco. And things kept growing over word of mouth. In the middle of 95, I had to uh, use, start using a listserv, since CC lists had grown so long, so large, that they uh, broke. So virtually starting with email lists, adding, adding yes. more, more people to emails? Oh, starting with a simple CC list, but then I had to go to a listserv, Major Domo, in the middle of 95, and that meant I had to give it a name. Mm -hmm. Now I'm a nerd, and I'm pretty literal. So I wanted to call it SF Events, since it was still most, mostly San Francisco-based events. But there were people around me, people smarter than me, who told me that I had already created a brand inadvertently. Uh, they were calling it Craigslist, and then they explained what a brand is to me. Seriously, I didn't know. And they were right. Uh, I had a brand and committing to one with my name in it meant that I would follow through on my commitment to my community and I would keep it personal and somewhat quirky. They were right. And so uh, we called it Craigslist and just kept plugging away for the first three years, it was all by myself. At the end of 97, people, uh, people showed me that I was getting about a million page views per month. Also, uh, people wanted to volunteer to help me run things. So we tried that through uh, 1998. Uh, that didn't work out so well. And people towards the end of 98 told me that if I wanted the, the thing to live, I had to make it into a real business, and I had to decide business model. Um, see, I'd been talking to venture capitalists and bankers just at parties and industry events, and they wanted me to do the usual Silicon Valley thing, and they wanted to throw huge amounts of money at me. Mm -hmm. But in Sunday school, Mr. and Mrs. Levin uh, taught me how to taught me to know that enough is enough, and I decided that I didn't need to make a billion dollars. I just wanted to doing well by doing good, and so I decided to to minimize uh, my monetization of the site. Mm -hmm. if, if we maybe go back now as well to the early sure. years, no the. Did you start this full-time, or what was your personal situation to start this oh. project? In the first three years, it was just, uh, in fact, 
first three years, it was just uh, me running this as a hobby. So, and I was at that point doing contract software work, and that's pretty well paid. So I was not hurting by running this as a hobby. Um, during that was still true of the year running this on a volunteer basis. But at the beginning of 99, when I made Craigslist into a company, um, at that point, I had to devote myself full time to Craigslist. So I gave up uh, contract programming. I was uh, actually working for a little while at a software firm. I gave that up. And it wasn't that much of a risk because job posters had uh, told me they wanted to pay me for job postings at the end of 97. So people wanted to pay me for job postings, and that kind of worked a little bit in 98, and then worked very well as a real company in 99. Mm -hmm. The part that, well, and remember, I made this decision about minimal monetization, not out of altruism, but just out of a sense of my own values. Mm -hmm. If we go to the early years, the first two, three years, um, no, from 95 to 98, how many hours did you roughly put into this? Because then no, growing it to 1 million in monthly views that, especially in those yeah. times, were already really big traffic. Did you spend a lot of time or was it more like one, two hours? Uh, how, how do we have to imagine that? Well, through those years, I put in typically between 40 and 60 hours per week. That's not a complaint. I chose to do that. And frankly, uh, between Craigslist and philanthropy, I have worked every day for well over uh, 25 years. That's not a complaint. That's what I prefer to do. I do set my own hours. So sometimes I might only work for a couple hours in a day, but I will work more hours during other days. And I have kept that up uh, since the beginning of 95. Uh, now I do the same with philanthropy. But the big decision I made in Craigslist in uh, two, around 2000, people helped me understand my limitations as a manager. Frankly, as a manager, I suck. And I turned it all over to a Jim Buckmaster. And frankly, I turned over all management responsibility and decision-making to Jim in 2000. So I haven't... Uh, Oh, I haven't been in management or decision-making position for over 20 years. Mm -hmm. When you when you switched and made this decision to uh, get into and to actually you know, create a company before it seems like it's a project and you want to do good and give back to community and see all these amazing transactions and you know exchanges that you have and the connections that you're building, what was kind of on your mind when thinking, you know, I see you as a, as well, guy that loves to build technology and see that you know, delivering value for, for humanity. What was your concern about actually building a business? Because you know, oftentimes that's the business world and where you kind of get to say, okay, now that we start a business, maybe I don't want to have VCs, but then as well, yeah, I have to deal with people and I have to manage people. How was this decision as a yeah. engineer to create a company? Well, the decision to make a company that was uh, not so hard because I could see it coming for some time. Mm -hmm. And I understood that that's the way you make something real, at least in American business culture. However, after a year, I realized that I was not good at making difficult decisions. Uh, 
like hiring people, firing people, or uh, sometimes just sticking my neck out one way or the other. And uh, I hired someone who I thought would be much better at that. Um, but now, after 20 years, I've acquired some of those skills in tough decision-making. For example, uh, quite frequently in the nonprofit world, I have to decide if I'm going to uh, fund a grant proposal or not. And each time, that's kind of like making a, a personnel decision. Mm -hmm. So I've become uh, much tougher than I used to be, uh, but now I run my nonprofit in a very different way. The nonprofit actually has no employees. So you get that as well, the uh, personal entrepreneur in the way that supports otherpreneurs uh, to help you know, have a positive impact on the world. When we think about uh, the team as well, you know, and finding Jim then to, to take over the role as a CEO, what was your, how did you find Tim? And was that like, that you, you know, how did you go about finding your, your co-founder or the CEO then? Well, sometime I think in 99, uh, he had submitted a resume and uh, he was really good. And we made him, uh, put him in kind of a lead programmer role. Uh, at that point, the organization was still uh, informal. I don't recall if we had the CTO role at that point. Uh, this is long ago. How many but, people, more or less? Oh, at that point, we were, I'm guessing, we were probably around 20 people. And Jim was working out in that role. And then I saw that uh, I, again, I was just not the right guy to keep a company going. Um, in business, I guess, often the people who are good at starting something are not the good are not good at the people making continuing the business so i realized that i should get out of the way and knowing when to get out of the way is a really important lesson in any kind of organization mm -hmm. and this is especially i imagine very hard decision because in, in your case as well it really carries your name the the company yes. at that space carries your name it's very public it has lots of traffic it as well not stands for a lot of connections and exchanges. Your name is on there, then letting go of something, an initiative that you started that as well carries your personality, I think emotionally and so is not so easy. And I think mm -hmm. many founders really struggle with that and this transition, they can't really get it to work. Do you have some uh, suggestions, some tips for people that are in that decision, they find themselves in that decision, what to do? Well, uh be very honest with yourself about your uh, skills and limitations. Um, if you're successful in starting something, ask yourself if you're uh, suited to continue operations. That means you'll have to deal with difficult uh, personnel operations. You have to deal in a smart way with lawyers and communications and PR people. Uh, you have to do, uh, figure out sometimes if you're getting good advice, from uh, legal or communications, or if you're actually not getting such good advice, and then you have to make painful decisions about moving on to other people in law or communications. Um, I've made some uh, substantial mistakes at times, and I've had to pay for them. Other people have had to pay for them sometimes. But the idea is that you often have to get second opinions uh, there's an old slogan that I recently remembered about uh, you measure twice 
and cut once. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you do need to get two opinions and then make a decision, which will sometimes be hard because sometimes you have to fire people. Sometimes you have to fire uh, legal or communications firms. Those are difficult decisions at times. And uh, Jim had to make those tough decisions for Craigslist, but now I have to make those tough decisions for Craig Newmark Philanthropies. Mm -hmm. We'll uh, talk about this part, you know, very, very important part in a second. As you did then the transition, which role did you actually transition in? And where, where did you find your new role then uh, to lead as well uh, in the way to, or to develop Craigslist further? Well, it was in Craigslist. Um, by the time I had made the decision about management, I had already stopped coding. And that makes me sad because I'm trained to be a software engineer. But I had already stopped coding. I was doing management and customer service. And then I just stopped being in management and I was full-time in customer service. Um, I also learned in uh, Sunday school from Mr. and Mrs. Levin that uh, you should treat people like you want to be treated. And that covers a lot of how I work with people. It also means that one should provide the best customer service one can which is difficult when one's product is mostly free. Um, but I spent over the years, let's say, uh, let's say maybe from uh, from nineteen, well, no, from two thousand to roughly two thousand four, I was strictly in customer service, and I did a great deal of it. Also, maybe suggesting what the customer service tools needed to be. Mm -hmm. um, but around five or six years ago, maybe 2000, uh, uh, maybe 2015 or so, I realized that uh, the team didn't need me anymore, and I could see myself building a really big role in philanthropy, where I could do a lot of good for the world by working with other people who were the people who really did some good for the world. My role... Uh, I was beginning to think it consisted of sharing power in the form of influence and uh, dollars and cash. You know, I would start finding people who were good at something, help them out, and then find more people who are good at something. Mm -hmm. One thing that I was always amazed by was as well your your way how you could you have this gigantic volume of interaction, human interaction on the website. No and in, in customer service, uh, when I sent you an email and you in customer service, you responded virtually immediately. And I thought maybe there's a, maybe you have some really exciting news and tips to share on how to enable <laughs> customer service at scale or something when you have this big impact in the world. Um, it's hard to recommend it at scale because most companies, customer service is only given lip service. They don't really care. I'm a, a bit obsessive, and I'm online almost all the time. So I guess from my point of view, it's not that hard to be responsive. Also, when you're in the habit of handling a lot of email, you know when email, there's email that can be ignored. Uh, you know that there's email that has to be responded to immediately, and some can be delayed a little bit. So there, it's a combination of experience and the obsessive behavior. Mm 
um, which is not a necessarily a healthy mixture, but it's my mixture. Uh -huh. I imagine as well. I mean, oftentimes customer service things of tickets or open items know that you then have this growing list if there's so much volume, which yeah. you then cannot work <clears throat> down really from. How did you handle it that it didn't become a growing, growing list that uh -huh. it was manageable? Well, I just uh, obsessed about what I had to do. And just once I started, I didn't stop until I was done. How important is technology for that? Because you are a developer by background. Did you write a lot of tools for yourself or so? Well, um, way long ago, 20 plus years ago, I did write a number of tools. My rule of thumb was when, that, when an activity took me an hour or more to do, I would write some software to make it much easier. After I stopped coding, the team continued to uh, do that philosophy. Uh, there's a lot of uh, tools used in uh, customer service. I am out of touch with that because I'm retired from the company, so I can go full time in customer, uh, so I could be full time in philanthropy. But even uh, a lot of the philanthropy I'm doing involves customer service for the people I help fund. Mm -hmm. No, and now switching to the philanthropic ventures that you support and entrepreneurs that you support to get started there. Which areas would you say are you most interested in? Well, the biggest area for this year and still ongoing, I support a broad spectrum of uh, operations in information warfare. Uh, our country is under attack, uh, mostly through the domestic allies of our uh, foreign adversaries. And there's a lot of uh, bad actors doing very bad things. The countermeasures involve better understanding flows of disinformation, better understanding cybersecurity, uh, better journalistic ethics, because a lot of the way that bad actors manipulate our country is by manipulating the press. And part of the solution will be on uh, stating very loudly some ethical principles like don't amplify disinformation. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's other areas too, which I support like veterans and their families, uh, women in tech. Um, there's a number of counter harassment efforts I'm uh, involved with. And uh, because I love birds and have a sense of humor, I also do support things like pigeon rescue. Uh -huh. Wonderful. If we go for the first area, I think with each of those, we could have no, a really exciting discussion. The first one, just to make people aware of, you know, we talked about the disinformation, information as well from abroad and so, which websites and so would you point to maybe where you say, if people want to get better information, those are some ventures, some activities where you think people can get better information or at least a balanced information. Well, this took a number of flavors in terms of uh, countering disinformation. I found a number of groups which research uh, disinformation, find out how it's happening, and then making, make recommendations to counter it. For example, two of the uh, best, most effective groups are the Stanford Internet Observatory, led by uh, Alex uh, Stamos and Rene DeResta, again, at Stanford University. At the Harvard Kennedy School, there's the Shorenstein Center, led by uh, Joan Donovan and Nancy Gibbs. They're doing very similar work, um, exploring, to some extent, some of the social implications of disinformation. There's the Partnership for Countering Influence Operations at the Carnegie Endowment for Peace, 
Um, the no, yeah, influence operations, sometimes called information operations, that's the term used for this often by the intelligence community. Mm -hmm. So I'm supporting a number of those efforts, supporting efforts intended to protect the, uh, the election. For example, uh, indirectly, I was supporting Chris Krebs uh, at Homeland Security, who just got fired by Trump. So there's now a large effort to, uh, to uh, support Chris. And there's also the Aspen Institute Cybersecurity Group, which I'm also a part of. So there's a lot of efforts involved in this. There's a lot of people looking at the ethics of journalism because we don't want mass media to be gamed by bad actors. So I'm working with an ethical center at Columbia University, at uh, the Pointer Institute, uh, at the uh, Markula Center for Applied Ethics at Santa Clara University. So all these efforts, and over the past few years, I've contributed, uh, I think, just short of $180 million and I'll continue to do so, particularly when it comes to election protection, because that's the pointy end of the spear. And I'm supporting groups like the Brennan Center for Law at NYU, uh, groups including the Leadership Conference for Civil Rights, and the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of good people doing a lot of good work. My role is to help them out and then try to get out of the way, because they don't need me interfering. Mm -hmm. When you you and not you you have so a, a whole spectrum of uh, very important initiatives that you support ventures and so you're looking at way way more no to then select I'm uh, not going and back these and support these um, no through money and then as well the personal uh, energy I assume how do you how do you select from all of this and have you some tips for people that want to do good in the world with their new ventures the okay. new initiatives how to come well, up that's with that's two questions there. Yes. <laughs> How I find things over the years, let's say prior to this year, I would do a lot of research and find better known, more effective organizations in different spaces. And this year though, I had already uh, supported enough groups that I could ask uh, the groups that I was supporting for more advice as to other groups I should be supporting in their area of expertise. Mm -hmm. The, especially when it comes to information warfare, we need more people, more eyes looking at the problem. A fair amount of redundancy is good because there's so many bad actors attacking our country. And also the more good actors that are protecting us, the harder it is for bad actors to try attacking the good actors. That's a real problem right now. And I can see that uh, bad actors are not only attacking our country and the election process, but they're also attacking uh, people who are doing good work protecting us. For some reason, uh, the bad guys are go after fact checkers a great deal, like the International Fact Checking Network or sometimes PolitiFact. I've seen a fair amount of that, um, and I'm not quite certain why they've chosen to focus there. That may be because there are some publications run by seriously bad people who have no defense against fact-checking except to attack the fact-checkers. That seems to be a common theme, that not just to create confusion in the market, but just, uh, in a yes. sense, delegitimizing 
very uh, high quality sources, not to just confuse the general public, oftentimes maybe not the ones that go very deep and profoundly in validating the information and so Yeah, um, this year, the press did a lot better than they did in 2016, um, but there still is a lot of uh, room for improvement. Mm -hmm. If people kind of consider, because they have this mission, they see this fear, they see this need to act, where do you see specific advice how to get started? How to come from, hey, I have an idea, to actually, in a way, make it real, to make the first steps? Do, do you see that certain themes or so? Any advice we say uh, early on, maybe learning from your journey or other journeys of, of uh, philanthropic entrepreneurs that you see now, how to help people out there get started? Um, it, I'm, it's always awkward telling people that they have to remember to treat people like they want to be treated, but that's the uh, first principle there. Beyond that, if you do have an, uh, some ideas and you manage to get some traction, bear in mind, for example, that you're going to be enmeshed in a lot of confidentiality agreements and uh, non-disclosure agreements, and sometimes those are really going to bother you because you're really gonna to wanna to talk about some of these things, but you can't. You do need, starting at the beginning, to engage, get good legal and communications advice. Um, and you have to make sure that you're actually getting good professional legal advice. And you're gonna to have to, from the very beginning, take control of your image and branding. Uh, I was lucky in my choice of time and place. I just got very lucky and the nature of what I was doing um, kind of showed people what my personality was about and that defined the branding and image of Craigslist. To some uh, significant extent, we lost uh, control of that, let's say 10, 15 years ago. But in my philanthropic work, I'm trying to do a much better job of uh, doing communications work and PR, because otherwise bad actors will find ways to turn that against you in ways that may wind up hurting other people a great deal. Mm -hmm. So, so comms and PR, you may have a prejudice against them, but you need to get over that. Mm -hmm. and, and in terms of finding now support for that, when we talk about the legal side first, how do you find the right then legal entity to help you kind of advise I, I know as well in the us for example legal advice is very expensive i guess here over in europe yeah. it's a bit cheaper normally uh, but any advice uh, is it should i just talk to other founders and then see what are the professional firms in that and get some references or how would you go about uh, all the above you need to talk to everyone you know who's had some of this experience because there are sometimes people, uh, services which are good, legal services which are good at projecting confidence and may not actually be very good at it. So you need to speak to everyone you can. And even after you engage consultants or counselors, you do need to uh, be a little skeptical for a few years and to see what happens. And the, again, the problem is that people who are not good at offering advice are often very good at being confident about the advice that you're giving you. So you do need to be careful and even a little cynical. 
Mm -hmm. So really validating at a substantial level as well, no, are the people really good as well, no, and to some extent kind of looking more deeply actually well, even into legal issues that some founders maybe think it's not that domain area and so they like to offload that and actually to some expert and then yeah. like being a bit careful well, there. Yeah. That's, the, uh, that's the idea of, of measure twice, cut once. Mm -hmm. um, one on getting the name out there. And we said as well, many people do good, but they don't really focus as much on yeah. getting your name out. You talked about PR. What would be one, two actionable advices or a piece of advice for founders that want to make it real? Well, from the beginning, people need to be active in social media, uh, whatever platform is uh, best for them. For me, it's Twitter. And you just have to relentlessly uh, get your branding out there to engage and engage with people short of spamming. Mm -hmm. For example, if you're doing some branding activity every uh, 10 minutes, that may be too much. But you need to do it and you need, if possible, to engage everyone in your company to do it and maybe all your supporters. Um, I'm engaged in that now with regards to my philanthropy and I actually have a mailing list uh, for people I work with so that they can support each other so they can better understand each other and maybe form new relationships and alliances. Um, to my surprise, people are doing a lot more of that than I ever expected. So I do spend a lot of time on Twitter uh, doing things like uh, supporting the uh, efforts that I believe in. I do take a look too at uh, how my own brand is uh, is being viewed online, and of course I'll indulge my sense of humor, and uh, you'll do you'll see things where I retweet a lot of other people's bird photos, and I will add my own, and I will uh, post things that I think are funny, or retweet other people's stuff. Uh, for example, a year ago, uh, Pizza Rat became a hero here in New York. That was a rat pulling away a whole slice of pizza by itself. Yesterday, we saw a guy on the New York City subways dressed as a rat pulling along an enormous uh, fake pizza piece of pizza, and I thought it was really funny. Uh -huh. So I will indulge my sense of humor, which I and I do know that I'm not as funny as I think I am. What be, no, and here as well, we see that with PR, kind of be yourself and then as well measure twice, cut once, so test out things yes. as well, find the right kind of mix as well for yourself. Um, what would be your final message to people that want to make it real in philanthropic areas and maybe creating their own venture, maybe as a hobby, maybe as a project? I'm going to repeat myself deliberately. Treat people like you want to be treated. And uh, do take control of your own branding and image. Get help to do that. But you're ultimately responsible, not anyone else. Craig mm -hmm. Newmark, thank you so much for sharing all these insights and for encouraging people to make it real. Thank you so much and all the best. And thanks for connecting today. Hey, it's my pleasure. I really appreciate it.